here's I'll tell you what tonight is not going to be. Tonight is not going to probably be um, an inspirational moral pick me up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just, I just want to be straightforward with that. It's it's not going to be like an emotional boost. Um, and, and so I, I apologize for that if if that's what you need. Um, that's not bad to need an emotional boost. It just I wanted to be upfront and say that that's probably not what we're going to have here. If you need it, find me afterwards. I'll give you a hug and call you beautiful and brave. Um, but I'm not I don't say that to say that tonight is not going to be profitable Um, I just say it's not going to be inspirational Um, for some of you it's probably going to be inspirational but for a couple of (laughs) it's going to be just a couple so um, I want to begin by apologizing and say um, that I personally ran out of time um, in prep um, to go any further in the passage. I had intended to move on and to keep progressing. Um, I personally ran out of time and started to prep the next verses, and I was rushing through the verses. And I was, I just, I really knew I wasn't doing them justice, and I, I hate to do that. I hate to skip over, um, you know, what God's revealed to us and just, you know, kind of skim them, copy somebody else says, and call it a good day instead of really understanding and, you know, doing a good job with it. And so, um, we are going to pause tonight, and again, it should be a little bit shorter, and maybe it won't be, we'll see, but um, we're going to just really park on the Kama Johannium this evening and explain a little bit of the history behind that and a little bit of um, discussion for why it should be in, why it should be out. Um, so tonight, I don't have any introduction that's necessarily especially cute or quaint or catchy, but um, let me start with this question. Um, what do you remember? From the last time we were in this room discussing something, um, what what sort of things jumped to mind? I remember we were talking about who is the witnesses in the testimony of Christ. Uh, oh, I mean, you kind of lost me with the whole blood and water thing. Totally went over my head. But the other two I was fine on. Okay. I don't remember what they were, but I remember understanding them. Perfect. Thank you for saying that. Um, would somebody be willing to um, paraphrase how you understood... Um, when it says in the past passage, we were talking about the witnesses which God has borne to the deity of Jesus Christ. Um, and it says, you know, the, the water and the blood bear witness. And what was, what was the interpretation we came out with on that one? The water being um, Jesus' baptism. Um, uh, this is supported by the Gnostic background of, you know, this is the heresy that's, you know, like the earliest heresy in the church. And um, this is what... John's turn to address um, with the context of his letter. And so it, it makes the um, Gnostics would affirm his baptism and say that that's when the man Jesus was um, had the spirit of Jesus, the actual spirit of the Son of God, descend upon him, that it was not, um, he was not born that way. Um, and then um, later at his death, they would say that it, the spirit of Jesus left him and sat on a tree branch laughing while he was being crucified. And so that's why um, it's not just the water only, but the water and the blood. The blood being representative of his death. Absolutely. I just want, I wasn't here last week, but uh, I want to draw an interesting, um, I guess, parallel from earlier on in the Bible in the book of Genesis in chapter, I think it's five. Uh, when Cain murders Abel, God says, uh, Abel's blood is crying out to God testimony against Cain. So it's an interesting place that something, that sort of language shows up also. 
Um, lastly, I promised that we would discuss the Kama Johannium. Um, bless me. Um, <laughs> okay, what is the Kama Johannium? I gave you a brief, you know, you know, five sentence summary. What what is it? No. No, Kama Johannium. Anyone but Josh. Let's start. I know you're interested in this stuff, Josh. I love it. We'll get there. Kama Johannium. What do we got? Yes, sir. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Is this legal? <laughs> in, in <laughs> no, it's fair. What do you got? No. Yeah, you, use it. It's fine. What do you got? The Kama Johannium is an interpolated phrase in verses 5, 7 through 8 of the first epistle of John. Basically, it's a set of phrases in the first epistle of John that is left out in many Bibles. Okay, here we'll do a quick exercise to remind you. I want you to read 1 John 5, 6 uh, through 8 in KJV, and then literally like any other modern translation that's not based off the Textus Receptus. It would probably not have it. The yeah. message wouldn't have it. Okay, compare ESV, NIV versus KJV or NKJV, and just what differences do you find? First uh, John 5, 6 through 8. How about that? Part would tell what translation you're reading. I'm reading the KJV Okay, and that emphasize verse uh, 7. 6 through 8, right? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit that beareth witness, because of the, because the spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in in earth, the spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Okay, now, literally, something else. NIV. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who testifies, because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We missed the whole like heaven section. Did you notice that? How there is no, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. We have a whole, almost a whole verse missing in pretty much every modern translation. And yet our King James and our New King James retain that, which would be the most explicit reference to the Trinity in the New Testament if it were to exist. Um, and so uh, that reveals my position already. But um, and so what I want to take a little bit of time is to discuss this um, because if you ever run into somebody who like knows their stuff enough, but then tries to put a spin on why the New Testament isn't reliable, this is one of like two or three places that they're going to go to. And so I want you to have a little bit of awareness about them. Okay, so. Um, in order to have a proper understanding of the Kama Johannium, um, you have to have a fairly working um, knowledge of church history, which I, I understand that most of you do not. And so I, I do have internal and external evidences, that is, as it is called, for why this passage should or should not be included. But I want to give you a little bit more than that, a little bit about where it's coming from. Um, and so the Kama Johannium takes um, a general knowledge of church history from 
XYZ date all the way up until about the Renaissance period. Um, but I know that that's not a strong suit for most of you. So I'll, I'll attempt to give you the needed basics in order to understand the point. Now, the church, uh, I'll try to tell this in a little bit of a story form. The church has not always been like it is today. Today, when I say the word church, uh, you probably would, like, if I say I'm going to a church, you're going to ask me, like, what kind of church, which church, where is this church? Um, there's a lot of, we see the church as a lot of independent bodies, even if you understand it theologically to be a part of the quote-unquote universal church, you still think of a church as this church and that church. You know, I go to LifePoint, I go to Southland, I go to XYZ Church. That's how we conceive of church. But that is not how it's always been. As a matter of fact, um, for most of, I think it's up till about uh, 1054, yes, the church was considered one thing. And it became known later as the Roman Catholic Church. But the word Catholic just means universal. And there was one church, and you were either in it or you were out of it. Okay, it wasn't like you just ran down to the Second Baptist in Corinth. Like, you are either a part of the church or not. That's why the saying is that there's only salvation in the church. Oh, Cyprian. He can, he can have... He can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. Do you see the attitude? You can't have a relationship with God if you are not a part of the church. And you couldn't just go find another church. It was a very one. There was a very unified sense to Christianity at this point in time. I think that's important because you know what happens? Guess what? The church... What happens to all churches that get in a disagreement eventually? They split. They, they split. And um, in 1054, that happened. The East split from the West, and this was a huge, huge deal. Um, these two churches spoke different languages. Okay, what languages did they speak? Just, what do you think? No. By this point, the Roman Catholic Church is probably... Latin. Absolutely. I'm going to guess the Eastern Orthodox was Greek. Yes. So we have a language barrier. We have different theologic emphases. The different Bible translations too, because Roman Catholic is going off the Vulgate Bible, which is the first Latin translation. And yes. Eastern Orthodox is probably just going off a Greek translation, like the Septuagint plus New Testament. Yes, that's exactly right. And so we had different theological approaches, different emphases overall. We had the Greek speaking East. We had the West um, speaking Latin. So you know the Eastern Church that developed from that as the Greek Orthodox Church, and you know the Western Church that developed from that as the Roman Catholic Church. Very good. Well, as we moved into the Middle Ages, and I'm going to focus on the Roman side here for a minute, the uh, Roman Catholic Church, um, their theologians entered into what is classified by historians as um, something called scholasticism. Now, scholasticism... Um, let me let me read a definition here. This is certainly insightful. Uh, 84. Scholastic theology. Um, no, that's not the right spot. Uh, scholasticism. Scholasticism derives its name from the great school um, in which classic questions of theology and philosophy were debated. Scholasticism is best regarded as a medieval movement flourishing in the period 1200 to 1500, which placed an emphasis, catch this is very Western thought, 
upon the rational justification of religious belief and the systematic presentation of those beliefs. Scholasticism, thus, does not refer to a specific system of beliefs, but to a particular way of doing and organizing theology, a highly developed method of presenting material, making fine distinctions, and attempting to achieve a comprehensive view of theology. If you're, if you're not careful, that sounds an awful lot like Protestantism, doesn't it? I mean, we try to form real discrete categories of how we do our theology. Well, that's because we're technically more of a branch from the Roman Catholic Church. If you are familiar with Greek Orthodoxy, there's a highly spiritual emphasis in that church. That's one of the main differences here. So I'm going to try to rein this in here a couple moments because I'm going to lose you otherwise. The theologians focused on ever finer and finer distinctions. There was literally—I love this. My favorite nickname of all time. There was literally a man whose his name was Dun Scotus, but his nickname was the Subtle Doctor, <laughs> because he was incredibly skilled at forming subtle, minor theological distinctions. Right? I mean, what a life, right? Like you literally <laughs> sit around and make finer and finer distinctions. Hey, we know his name. <laughs> not true of everybody in history, so obviously yes. it's not a joke, all right? <laughs> no, and that's why you, uh, if you know your history a little bit, students would wear a dunce cap, um, <laughs> dunce scotus. Anyways, so I don't want you to think that this is all bad. A lot of great things came out of this time. Um, influential works, you believe a handful of the things that you believe right now as a result of Thomas Aquinas, Anselm, and the boys doing a great job um, with some of their theology. Messed up a fair amount of things in my opinion, but um, a fantastic articulation of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement came from this time. A lot of the things that you believe are actually rooted um, both in the Bible and from these theologians. But they influenced reformers very heavily, which um, all the way down the chain has influenced us. Now, let me ask you this. When somebody starts to make ever finer and finer theological distinctions, as you may have heard me proliferate on and go into a time or two here, what are some natural reactions that people tend to have when you start making super fine philosophical distinctions? They tune out because you're being pedantic. Yes. Uh, it means that you're being really technical and drawing pointless distinctions between Splinters. things that most people really don't care about. No, no, that's. See, the difference here is that I'm just objectively right, and that matters. As opposed to being pedantic, where I'm objectively right, but no one cares. So when people start splitting hairs theologically, people tend to get annoyed. I think that fits with my experience as well. I mean, when you start going into the depths of it, you lose a lot of people. And um, you're not alone in that. An entire movement was based off of that feeling. Scholasticism, that medieval movement, was never particularly strong in Italy. Now, if you're a student of history, what movement happened during this time period in Italy? This takes no church history. Which, 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 like, are you talking the Renaissance? There you go. Okay. Yes. You have to also be specific. He was specific with Italy because the uh, Renaissance in England and most of Northern Europe happens like a couple hundred years later. So. Yes. Now, Michelangelo, um, 
Well, let me ask this. What are some, what are, if you're not Stephen, uh, what are some, what are, no, it's fine. I, I appreciate that. What are some things, what was the, what was the emphasis in the Renaissance? Um, what was, what happened? Art. Art. Who are some famous artists? Michelangelo. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, sir. Yes. How about how about our how about our guy Leonardo da Vinci, right? Or you may have heard of uh, Dante. Yes. Um, yes. Um, so the Renaissance. This is a time when there was great revival in artistic and literary studies. Okay. There's. One of my favorite terms is uh, the the, I, the goal, the ultimate goal of the Renaissance was to become a Renaissance man, which means that you're well-rounded and able in many different areas of life. And so they had a great focus on uh, artistic and literary revival. Raphael, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo. You had the, the Roman ruins around you stimulating your thinking about the past. But another really, really important event happened, okay? And this was in the east. Constantinople fell, which sounds super irrelevant, right? Like, who cares about Byzantium? Like, I care. Thank you. <laughs> so Constantinople falling is huge because if you're a Christian living in Constantinople and you're getting run over by the Turks, the Ottoman, like the, excuse me, not the Turks, but the... Uh, the Ottoman, yes, who are Muslim, what are you going to do, probably? You're going to panic. And? Run. Die. Run. Where are you going to run? If you're a Christian, you're going to go to the other parts of... You're going to go to Christendom. You're going to go to Christendom, which is... Particularly, where is the emphasis of Christendom focused? He's like, guys, there's a sign right there. So, is it, is it like Israel as well as Rome, or would you just go to Rome? At this point in time, just Rome, because okay, they've already taken over Israel. They would have already taken over right. Israel. And so, the Western church is focused in Italy. Okay, so you have this great influx of Greek culture into the Western world. Okay? Stay with me here, because this, this is where it gets exciting. <laughs> um, so you have a, a migration towards Italy. And with them, if, you, if, you're, if you're moving somewhere, what are you going to take with you at this point in time? What are some things that you're going to take? Your most important possessions, which happen to be what? Scrolls. Philosophy. Plato, Aristotle, New Testament manuscripts. Because New Testament manuscripts were written in Greek. And so they stayed largely in the East. Okay, So there's a revived interest in the classics. Plato, Aristotle, and um, New Testament manuscripts. This came to be known as the Ad Fontes movement, which means back to the sources. Back to the sources. So high scholasticism had come in. Super fine distinctions. They're getting all complicated. People are like, we could do that or we could just like read it ourselves. And so their idea was, we're going to skip over all the philosophy, all the theology that these people have been doing, and we just need to read the Bible. Or we just need to read Plato. Or we need to read Aristotle. We don't need all the commentary. We can skip over it and go 
back to the sources, hence the um, name of that movement. Um, and so let me, let me ask you this. Does that, does that sound familiar for you reformed individuals? <laughs> back to the sources, we only need... All of this should sound familiar to all of you because you were born in Western civilization and this is literally ingrained into the way that we all look at the world. It is. You would almost even hear sola scriptura, back to or scripture alone, as in you don't need this or that or the other, you can go back to the sources. And so um, this is a mindset that certainly influenced the reformers, which by default influences your worldview um, and a lot of the both Christian and societal things. So as I mentioned already, there's an increasing questioning of, oh, excuse me, let me, this is going to be helpful. Sorry. Um, Yes, yeah, so in addition to um, the Ad Fontes, it led to a worldview called humanism. Now, when I say humanism, what jumps to mind? Humans. Humans, um, but the like the philosophical idea, when you're a humanistic sort of person, what in our modern context, how do we use it? Our modern context is that it's like all about humanity, like we're trying to better mankind, like it's Yes. Um, that's not what humanism meant to them, though. Humanism meant something completely different. Um, the term humanism has come to uh, designate a worldview which denies the existence or rel uh, relevance of God or which is committed to a purely secular outlook. Most humanists of the period were religious and were committed to the purity and renewal of Christianity um, rather than to eliminate it. The human... Um, they thought that this regeneration would take place by a return to the fountainheads of Western thought. The humanist program was set out um, in the Latin slogan Ad Fontes, um, which set out to return to the wellspring of sources uh, for the modern Western culture in the ancient world, allowing its ideas and values to refresh and renew that culture. As I mentioned, it was, um, it was very influential on art and literature. Um, in the case of Christian humanism, believers would return directly to the simplicity of the New Testament, bypassing the complex theology programs of the Middle Ages, um, but it would be the original Greek text of the New Testament, not the Latin Vulgate translation, um, which was widely used by medieval theologians. And so um, there was a questioning of tradition, largely. You know, why? Why do we do it like that? Sounds very familiar to our culture today. We have a lot of a questioning sort of question tradition. Why is it done that way? And, and they did the same thing. Um, but one of the things that they particularly questioned was, as Stephen already mentioned, they started to really question that Latin Vulgate that Jerome translated a few hundred years ago. That's what they used, right? We speak Latin, we use Latin. A lot of the theology was based off of that one translation. And people were like, hmm, just like, uh, honestly, just like a lot of you have with the KJV. You know, if you grew up using KJV, then you started like, why do we, why? And that's exactly what they did. Um, <clears throat> people are questioning it. Now, on pops um, to the scene, Desiderius Erasmus, who is regarded as one of the most important human, uh, humanistic writers of the Renaissance. Um, he was a Dutch individual who wrote, um, he wrote many things, but his great work of publishing was um, his Greek New Testament. This was the very first Greek New Testament. Now, for those of you who are um, 
confused by that. When I say a Greek New Testament, there are manuscripts, there are minuscules, there are fragments, there are all these things in raw form. And then somebody comes along, takes all those manuscripts, looks at them, reads them, compares them, says, hmm, that's different from that. Okay, that's the same. And then they compile it into one, and this is what he did for the very first time, was a published Greek New Testament. That, ladies and gentlemen, is exactly what textual criticism is. If you hear of textual criticism in its purest form, is that's what that says, that's what that says. Let's figure out what the original reading was. That traditionally has been the goal of textual criticism is to determine what the original reading was. So you get all the manuscripts. So let's say I have 10 copies of 1 John. They differ in some minor places. Well, nine of them have this reading. I'm probably going to go with that reading. Does that make sense? What? Yeah, let's go I'm ahead. Gonna hopefully frame this in another way that might make more sense too. Um, for those of you who keep up on politics, we are in the process of um, nominating a new Supreme Court justice. Really? And she is, um, she is mm. a originalist. Original. So basically, she's trying to figure out what the Constitution actually says and how it was interpreted at the time and based judgments based on that. And so that's very similar to how somebody would be looking at these uh, New Testament manuscripts. Is that they'd be looking at these and trying to see, okay, how accurate is our understanding versus what it originally said? Uh, and if there's a discrepancy, where is it coming from? And uh, if there is a discrepancy and it can't be reconciled, then you side on the, uh, the original document as opposed to the newer interpretation. Yes, and so for, let's say that you had a 4th century manuscript that has this reading, but you know a 10th century manuscript says this. Which one's probably going to be more accurate? The 4th century. Why? Why would the 4th century tend to be more accurate? How many of you have ever played a game called Telephone? How did that end up for you? I was going to say that. That's exactly right. It didn't end up very well. You, either, you may have lost, you might have, you probably had some of it, probably some right, but you miss a phrase, miss a the, and that's exactly the idea here. Earlier manuscripts would generally tend to have a cleaner transmission of the original. So this is what Erasmus did. He compared the manuscripts that he had access to on the spot. But, this is, this is humans for you, he had competition. Other people wanted to get out the first Greek New Testament manuscript, or not manuscript, but published edition of the Greek New Testament. Um, so you know what Erasmus did? He rushed it. He rushed his first one to print because he wanted to be, and this is why we're talking about him today, he, he wanted to be the guy. He wanted to be the guy to get the first one published. And so um, he, didn't, he didn't have some Greek manuscripts for some certain areas, like Revelation. He back-translated Latin into Greek so that he could publish his Greek New Testament. Um, he, he, so he, uh, he did some sketchy things on the first one. We'll just say it like that. But he did end up getting um, it published. And though it was a little shoddy at first... Erasmus exposed deep flaws in the Latin Vulgate. Now, some of the verses that he translated very differently 
undermined theology that was based completely on the Latin Vulgate. So if you are the Catholic Church and you're good at anathematizing people, you probably aren't happy, right? I mean, you start undermining our thousand years of beliefs now because our translation was wrong. That's going to, some people aren't going to be very happy. So, um, yeah, it caused a little stir. And uh, traditional Catholics were concerned about how this was undermining their New Testament practices. And guess who was excited about it? The Reformers, because it was undermining traditional Catholic practices. <laughs> so it's no surprise then that the Reformed tradition has always had a huge emphasis on original languages, because we're like, yes, yes, let's Catholic stuff. <laughs> Get it out. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's why the Reformers really welcomed the return to original languages as opposed to a continual dependence on the Vulgate. Now, one particular area that caused uproar was the Kama Johannium. Because guess what? When Erasmus did his first edition, guess what he didn't include? Pretty much all of verse 7. And people didn't like it because now he's an anti-Trinitarian because he didn't translate it. I mean, you, you see what I'm saying? Like, ah, he must have a bias against this, therefore he didn't include it in his Greek New Testament. And um, supposedly, the story goes, that people questioned him on this point, and supposedly he responded that if someone could produce one Greek manuscript with that reading, he would include it in his next edition. You know what magically appeared? <laughs> a, Greek New Test a Greek manuscript with the Kama Johannium in it. How convenient. So, supposedly, as the story goes, Erasmus, having made that rash promise, includes it in his next edition, but with a substantial footnote about why he thinks it was doctored. Now, I will say that the leading Erasmus scholar um, criticizes, the, um, criticizes the veracity of that story. They're, they're not really sure if that story actually happened or not. But... By his third edition, the Kama Johannium had made it in to his Greek New Testament, okay? The German copy was based, Luther's copy was based off of the second edition of his Greek New Testament. Kama Johannium did not make it into the German tradition. But, guess what? Um, it was Theodore Beza's 10th edition of the Greek New Testament in 1598, which was based off of the third edition, and Theodore Beza's was the basis for the KJV. And so into our modern hands falls the Kama Johannian. Okay? You see how that, that line falls. So it wasn't original in Erasmus's. He includes it. The edition that he includes it in goes to be the basis for this, and the basis for that is the basis for our translation of the KJV. Okay, you see, see that little history line there? Okay. Um, so... And the story may not have been true, but one thing is very true. Erasmus didn't want to have his name trashed, and he didn't want his work to go unsold. And so it was in his financial best interest to put the Kama Johannium in, whether or not somebody, you know, whether or not the promised story is true or not. It is very true that it was financially in his best interest to do that. So with that little bit of history, now I want to turn to a little bit of the actual evidence for whether or not it should be included. I think the story itself reveals a little bit about why you, have, you should have some questions 
about its inclusion, but let's take a look at the actual manuscript evidence. So um, there are three main reasons um, and external evidence against its inclusion. And I'll summarize these three and then go into them real quickly. One, Greek manuscripts. Two, lack of quotations. And three, lack of other language manuscripts. Allow me to read this quote by Dr. Wallace, um, an esteemed textual critic from DTS, a man you should be very thankful for, even if you don't know he exists. Um, you want to tell about the little project he's on? Yeah, he, um, uh, he was the first to actually start an uh, organization that catalogs all the Greek manuscripts and um, papyri that um, the um, New Testament is written on. And before his time, there was uh, you had to call libraries and say, do you have this? I mean, like, th there was no way to look at it, and now we have extremely um, well-digitized photos of these manuscripts that you can actually go for free online and read, and, um, and it's, it really is remarkable what he's done. Okay, so this longer reading, this Kama Johannium, is found only in eight late manuscripts, four of which have the words in a marginal note. Most of these manuscripts, uh, uh, 2318, 221, um, and with some minor variations, 61, 88, 429, 629, and 636, and 918. Those are manuscript numbers. That's how they, they just put numbers to them, okay? Guess when these originate, the ones that have them? They originate from the 16th century. The earliest manuscript, uh, Codex 221, uh, is from the 10th century. Um, includes the reading in a marginal note, which was added sometime later after composition. Here's, here's a big point. Thus, there is no sure evidence of this reading in any Greek manuscript until the, the 1500s. 1500 AD is the first time we have sure evidence that this exists. There is no Greek manuscript before 1500 with that reading. That's concerning. There are a lot of Greek manuscripts out there and I will admit that this whole chapter tends to have later manuscripts associated with it, but that's a very late date to get manuscripts from, only about 500 years ago. Um, each such reading was apparently composed after Erasmus's Greek New Testament was published in 1516. Each reading was composed after 1516. Indeed, the reading appears in no Greek witness of any kind, either manuscript, patristic, or Greek translation of some other version until 1215 AD. Um, in a Greek translation of the Acts of the Lateran Council, a work which was originally in Latin. This is all the more significant since many a Greek father would have loved such a reading for it so succinctly affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity. What have we talked about in some of the past weeks? We've talked about how there are a lot of Christological heresies. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you can just go back to the Nicene Creed. This was one of the things heavily debated while they were uh, before they had come up with that creed, uh, the creed came as a result. If, it, if that verse had been around at the time, odds are that probably would have settled things a lot faster. Absolutely. Um, and so this is all the more significant um, on that point. The, the reading seems to have risen from a 4th century Latin homily in which the text was allegorized to refer to members of the Trinity. From there, it made its way into copies of the Latin Vulgate, the text used by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, um, in terms of external evidence, the lack of other languages, um, and then we're going to discuss its origin and transmission into, um, into where we are today. How many of you have heard the name Bruce Metzger by any chance? A couple? 
Okay, you're, you're, that's my fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so he is. He's. I. I, I, believe, I believe he just passed away not too terribly long ago. But um, he's an esteemed textual critic as well. And here's his um, saying on it: uh, the passage is absent from manuscripts of all ancient versions, Syriac, Coptic, Armenian, Ethiopic, Arabic, and Slavonic, except the Latin. It is not found in A, the old Latin versions um, from Tertullian, Cyprian, or Augustine, um, or in the Vulgate as issued by Jerome, Codex uh, uh, Fuldenesis, uh, copied AD uh, 541 to 546, uh, or Codex uh, Amiatinus, uh, copied in AD 716, or revised by Alcunin, uh, the first-hand Codex uh, Valisilanus in the 9th century. The earliest instance of the passage being quoted as a part of the actual epistle um, is from an epistle in the 4th century Latin treatise entitled uh, Liber Apologeticus, um, attributed to Spanish heretic uh, Priscillian, who died about 385, or to his followers, uh, Bishop Extadius. Apparently, the gloss arose when the original passage was understood to symbolize the Trinity, um, though the men, through the mention of the three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood, an interpretation that may have been written first as a marginal note and that afterwards found its way into the text. <clears throat> in the 5th century, the gloss, or the will saying, was quoted by the Latin fathers in North Africa and Italy as part of the text of the epistle. From the 6th century onward, it found its uh, more and more frequently in manuscripts of Old Latin and the Vulgate. In these various witnesses, the wording of the passage uh, differs in uh, several places. So... Um, to summarize those just a little bit, very little and very late Greek manuscript evidence, um, and despite all the Trinitarian battles that took place, there and the excessive, excessive, <laughs> so many words written on the topic, there is a noted absence of this verse, a noted absence. There are some who try to say that this was quoted in shady forms, but I think the evidence for that is rather spotty. <clears throat> in terms of internal evidence, Bruce Metzger goes on to articulate two points why it should not be included. Um, as regards um, the transcriptional pr uh, probability, if the passage were original, that is, if it actually was there to start with, no good reason can be found to account for its omission, either accidentally or intentionally, by copyists of 100 uh, Greek manuscripts and by translators of ancient versions. And then two, as regards intrinsic probability, the passage makes an awkward break in sense if you include it. It, it doesn't flow quite right if you include it there. <clears throat> so um, those are some final reasons um, why um, Bruce Metzger and then Dan Wallace would concur on that as to its not inclusion in the New Testament. Well, I'm going to end this part of our discussion uh, by quoting John Calvin, who took the easy road out on this topic. This is this is classic. This the whole of this verse has been by some omitted. Jerome thinks that this happened through design rather than through mistake, and that indeed only on the part of the Latins. But as even the Greek copies do not agree, and here's Calvin's summary, I dare not assert anything on the subject. But in light of our current manuscript evidence, I think we have solid belief for rejecting it as a part of the New Testament canon. Um, and for me, the most convincing part is that there are simply no Greek New Testament manuscripts which include it 
prior to 1500, really. There's a recent um, ninth manuscript discovery that is controversially dated earlier, but uh, that's still a little bit to be determined. But so I don't see a lot of good reason to include it. Um, and so somebody throws this up, then um, I think you you can you can confidently say that it is not there. So any questions? Um, I, I know that was a lot, and I tried to give you a little bit of buildup. Um, you know, I do what I do, right? So, yeah, there we go. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's important, though, to know, it's important to know the transmission of the scripture. Um, if you're going to base your life off of a book, pretty important to know that it actually said what it originally said and that you have the ones that should be there. So questions of canon, questions of textual criticism, when you start really getting serious about what scripture says, right down to the very words, and you really start to think about where did those words come from? Are they the words that were there? Did Is that what Paul wrote? Do we have any reason to trust the New Testament as we have it today? And those are questions that are very heavily debated. So um, I, I throw that out there because um, well-intentioned conservative people say it's there because it's there and you should believe it because it's there. But most conservative scholars today who believe in the preservation of the New Testament that we have what was originally there, most of them will agree that that was not in there and some would agree regarding the longer ending of Mark. So that's all I have. If you don't have any questions, then that's all I got. Permission for a sarcastic comment. Does that mean that my NIV is more accurate than your KJV because it discludes in places? In places. It is Look, everybody calm down because clearly we all know the Geneva Bible is just objectively best. <laughs> it's it, it really is important though because it's not necessarily and this is true, but there's there's not necessarily like okay. Let me say this: NIV, ESV, all of these they're all based off of probably I would this is a guess. I have not studied this recently, but they're all based off of the Nestle Allen Novum Testum Graeci 27th edition. Okay, they're, they're all coming from the same thing. However, if you take a different interpretive thought, how many of you have studied a foreign language at some point in your life? You know that like if you studied French or Spanish or whatever that word may not have a perfect English correlation. Okay, It's not like, if you want a word-for-word -word translation, you're going to have the worst Bible you've ever had. <laughs> well, and to add on top of that, so especially with the New Testament, for example, well, I mean, not New Testament versus Old Testament, just like, uh, I'm thinking about because it's Greek. So a lot of uh, sentences that we say will have one meaning, when said in Greek, they'll have a, a slightly different meaning, um, which by the way, it's a pitch for all of you to read Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle because you'll get a little bit of context for the way that Greek, the Greek world was thinking at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. But just to add on to that translational issue. So there are translational schools of thought. Dynamic, that's going to be more NIV. 
uh, thought for thought, as they would say. This is what the thought was trying to convey. And so we'll put this thought in English. Or you have something on the other end of the spectrum, like the NASB, or in our linear translation, which is attempting to get to more rigid, wooden, word for word. And it sacrifices readability and understandability, but you're getting more word for word. And so. Um, or you can go with the best of both worlds and go with the message Bible. <laughs> Um, ESV, CSV tend to fall sort of in the middle of that, um, but American Standard is a more word for word. Yep. Yep. So uh, it's just a little bit. So okay. Cool. Socialized. Have fun. I think we I need. I, wanna... I need a like a graph that shows like the Bibles that are most word for word. <laughs> they have them. Really they have them. I wanna I wanna make a comment on the whole uh, translation thing too. So. So to what I was saying earlier, this is a really interesting thing, for, or at least I find it interesting. So the Greek concept of a soul is very different than what we think of. Uh, in Greek, the, the simple idea of a soul is whatever it is that separates a living thing from a dead thing. So have fun with that when you talk about the concept of souls in the And the Greeks got really specific because there's like a, a plant soul, an animal soul, and people's souls, and the plant souls were less complicated, they were less complicated, animals less, so the people and vice versa, it's really fine, yeah, great point, by the way, the message tries to interpret the passage to just say what it says.